Well, sometimes uh, Sunday mornings can be a bit of a strange animal. Uh, Let me give you a a couple stories to illustrate what I mean by that. So first, let's take the example of the Eldridge family as they pull into the parking lot of First Baptist Church in any town, USA. And as they pull into the parking lot, his dad steers the SUV into a parking spot. Um, The look on that dad's face speaks volumes. The corners of his mouth are turned down. His, His brow is furrowed. And his eyes are seething. It's been one of those type of mornings. And the passenger seat next to him sits his wife, Julie, and she is on She looks like she's on the verge of tears. In the back seat, there's a toddler who is crying, an eight-year-old who is whining, and a teenager who is sucked into his iPhone. And though they've only been up for a few hours, it feels like the morning has already been a war with more battles than they can count. They fought over when people were supposed to wake up, over what people are wearing, over what's for breakfast, over how late they're going to be for church. There's been arguments about the tone that people are using. There's been tears shed and harsh words said and repeated moments of frustration. So they pull into the parking lot. Dad parks the car. They pile out in silence. And they start walking across the parking lot to the church sanctuary. And as they approach the the doors of the building, one of the greeters at First Baptist, an older gentleman named William, he opens the door with a smile and he says, How's the Eldridge family doing this fine morning? And then the most fascinating phenomenon occurs. That dad's sullen face suddenly shifts into a broad, wide, almost plastic smile. And Julie, his wife, three kids in tow, she follows suit. She plasters a big, broad grin across her face. And together they say, oh, it's so good to see you, William. Thank you for asking how we're doing. But you know us, it's the Lord's Day and the Eldridge family's just doing great. The Eldridge family's just doing great. Well, then across town, at another church, at Sun Garden Grove Community Church, the pastor, Pastor James, is feeling a little bit anxious. You see, today is a big Sunday. Their church, Sun Garden Grove, has been been working hard to draw in all kinds of people from the community. They've sent out mailers. They've purchased advertisement. They've really pushed themselves as the most welcoming and accepting place in town. They've promised, they promised off a fun, liberating, exciting Sunday experience. And people have shown up, the place is packed. But now, it's time to deliver. And Pastor James is feeling a little anxious. He's gone over all the material for his message. His jokes are on point. He's worked hard to remove any possibly offensive terminology. You see, he doesn't want anybody feeling judged or condemned by what he says. He just wants to be encouraging. He just wants people to feel good, to feel good about themselves. He wants people to feel like this is a place that they can stick around. I mean, he knows the drill. Their new building, all the programs that they're running, everything that they do to offer the most exciting service in town, that stuff doesn't just pay for itself. You need more attendees. You need more, quote-unquote, giving units. And Sun Garden Grove has grown a lot the last few years, and things feel energized and exciting. But at times, they also feel incredibly draining. At times, it feels like the church has just become this big machine that needs to be fed. More money, more volunteers, more energy, always more to keep people happy and coming. Well, as the band wraps up its worship set, Pastor James steps onto the stage He flashes his charismatic smile. He looks out at the packed room and he says, We are so glad you're here today. Today is a day about you. Today is a day for you. Well then, just up the street, at a smaller, older church than Sun Garden Grove, a young woman named Cynthia sits uncomfortably in a pew. However, her her lack of comfort isn't because of the old pews at Central Presbyterian. Instead, she's pretty uncomfortable because of the words that she hears coming from the pulpit that Sunday morning. You see, Cynthia is home from college on a break. And her church, the church that she grew up in, has a new minister. And she really doesn't like him. He's not the most eloquent speaker. He kind of looks a little goofy. 
But what really bugs her is the way that he talks about God. He talks way too much about God judging people. He says things like, we're all rebellious, undeserving sinners, undeserving of God's love. He keeps pointing out things like sin and condemnation. And to Cynthia's surprise, he even talks about hell like it's a real place. And every time she hears this pastor, this new pastor, make these statements, in her mind she tells herself, not my God. Not my God. She assures herself over and over again. What he's saying, that's not true of my God. That's not my God. And then she tells herself she knows better than this new guy anyways. I mean, she's being educated by some of the country's finest, most progressive intellectuals. And her professors, they understand how, how culture is growing and changing and evolving. They don't hold to such archaic, outdated ideas as this preacher. So sitting uncomfortably in that pew, Cynthia crosses her arms in defiance and keeps repeating her little man- mantra, not my Let me, give you, let me give you one more. And this one takes place in a small independent church just outside of that town. There, a, a single mom named Bethany is on the verge of tears. She's, she's walking across the lobby. She's just left the restroom. And as she heads towards the sanctuary, she can feel their condemning glances. Two older women in her church, two women who barely speak to her, don't really know her, are giving her this icy stare. And she feels it. It feels like daggers. And she knows what it's all about. You see, back in the restroom, Bethany was in one of the stalls. While she was in one of the stalls, she overheard a conversation that these two women were having. And surprisingly, their conversation was all about her. It was all about the way that she dressed, It was all about how unruly her kids are. It was all about how she was unfit to be a mother. It was all about how her husband probably left her because she just doesn't know how to be a wife. For two women who don't really know her, they had some pretty strong opinions about her. Bethany couldn't believe what she was hearing. So now as she walks into that sanctuary on that Sunday morning and she's fighting back tears... She asks herself, how? How can I go in there and worship with the likes of them? How can I worship with them? Well, as I said, sometimes Sunday mornings can be a bit of a strange animal. You have some people who who show up to worship, uh, putting on plastic smiles in order to, to cover up what's really going on in their life. You have others, even those who are in leadership, who treat the church like it's primarily a big show bent on keeping the spiritual consumers happy. You have those who come to church ready-made God in hand. And you have others who are so filled with a judgmental spirit that they seem more eager to gossip and slander than they are to serve and to love. So, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? What do we do with Sunday mornings like those? What do we do with churches and church people who are like that? I mean, if we look around at the church in the West, we, we will see all of those, those things that those little stories illustrate. We will see that in spades, right? We will see that in spades. We, we find church leaders out there. I mean, it's, it's on social media all the time. Church leader after church leader being exposed for, for manipulating people, exploiting the flock instead of really shepherding the sheep. We find those who call themselves Christians, but who openly reject what the Bible clearly teaches, what it teaches about things like sexuality, what it teaches about things like like personal holiness, what it even teaches about salvation itself. And we witness some folks who, who treat their fellow church members more as objects of scorn than brothers and sisters to love. At times, the church in the West can seem like a pretty foolish place. It can seem like a pretty, pretty foolish place. And sadly, uh, this is not a new reality. As one author points out, each generation has troubles of its own in New Testament times. Remember, James criticized those in the church who were showing favoritism towards the rich. 
Paul cried out against the Corinthians who were getting drunk on the communion wine. And remember, Jesus made a whip to drive out those who were profiting on the pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, those who were, who were treating the temple like a den of robbers. So brothers and sisters, if we look around honestly, we need to confess that foolishness abounds. And it abounds in the church. It abounds in the church. So what do we do with it? What do we do with it? How do we respond to the church in which, in which people worship with plastic smiles and, and greedy hearts and gossip on their lips? Well, I'll tell you, I think, I think the easy, tempting response is to become frustrated with the church, to grow discouraged, and then let that discouragement lead us to just, I'm just going to pack up my things, I'm going home. I'm out of here. I mean, we can get to that point where we become so grieved and so angry and so frustrated with all of it, with all the, the phoniness, all of the shameful behavior, that we decide that it would be better for us to just, to just leave it all behind and strike out on our own. We can get to the place where we think things like, or, or maybe even say things like, I love Jesus, but I can't stand his people. Or I, I delight to worship God, but I've given up on organized religion. Or simply... I'm done with the church. I'm done with the church. But is, is that the wisest response to all of this foolishness? Is that the wisest response to all of this foolishness that we see? Well, that's what I want us to look at this morning. I want us to talk this morning about how we deal with foolishness in the house of God. And in order to guide us in this conversation, help us approach this wisely, uh, we're going to turn back to an old friend, uh, the preacher, the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. So go ahead and take your Bibles if you haven't done so already and turn over to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes and chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And for those of you who've been with us here on Sunday mornings, uh, you know that we've been working through this book, this book of Ecclesiastes, and and we've been walking along with the spokesman of this book, a fellow who goes by the Hebrew name Koaleth, or as it's translated into English, the preacher. And this preacher, he's been talking to us about life in this fallen world. He's been pointing out all those things that we run after to try to find gain and meaning and substance, things like possessions and power and pleasure and prestige. And he's showing us, he's shown us over and over again that they're all just vanity. They're all to use his Hebrew term, hevel. Remember that? That term means smoke or vapor. And that, that's the reality of all these things we end up chasing. They're like smoke. They are temporary. They are fleeting. They're mysterious. And chasing them is often like chasing the wind. It's often like chasing the wind. However, this morning, as we now come into this new chapter, chapter 5, we're going to find ourselves encountering a somewhat different approach from this preacher. Now, now, by that, I don't mean that he's suddenly going to change his tune on, on the fleeting nature of all these things that we chase and look to for meaning. He's not going to change his tune. Instead, the change that I'm talking about is there's going to be a, a substantial uptick in this chapter in his, what I'll call, God talk. There's going to be a substantial uptick in his God talk. You see, so far throughout much of this book, God has been in the background. Uh, the direct mentions of his name have been minimal. Uh, the word God didn't even show up in chapter 4. I showed up once in chapter 1, twice in chapter 2. But here in the first seven verses of chapter 5, we find God mentioned seven times. Seven times in those verses. And those seven verses, they're actually the highest concentration of talk about God in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. So here, as this preacher shifts to this new topic, God, in a sense, steps from the background into the, the foreground. But, but that's not the only change that we experience as we come into chapter 5. Again, those of you who have been with us in this study, you probably noticed that, that for much of the book so far, it has had this very um, like reflective tone. Uh, this preacher, he often describes what he sees, uh, what he perceives, what, what he's thinking in his heart. So, so this book at times, it feels like you're reading somebody's journal. There's a re very reflective nature in it. But here, for, for the first time really in this book, this preacher's going to get... Preachy. He's going to get preachy. He, he's going to speak directly to the reader. He is going to warn us. He is going to admonish us. He's going to preach 
at us. And just look at what he preaches at us. Let's look at what he warns us and admonishes us about. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps, he says, when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger, that is the the temple messenger, oh, it was a mistake. Why Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must fear. So here again, this preacher, he's now started really preaching at us. And he's warning us. And his warning here is about going to the house of God. He says, look at the text, he says, guard your steps. And that's really a word of caution. You could translate that as beware. Or better, watch yourself. Watch yourself. Watch your steps when you go to the house of God. And when this preacher was writing back in the Old Testament era... The house of God referred to the temple. Now, you remember there, in the temple, that's the place where God's people would come. They would offer their sacrifices. They would hear the law of Moses read. They would sing songs of praise. And they would offer up their prayers. So, so the temple, what was the place uh, for corporate or, or collective worship for the people of God in the Old Testament. However, now, today, we, the, the church gathered, we are the temple. We are the temple. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, he's, he's addressing the church there in Ephesus, and he says to them, listen, this is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. He says to them, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, so the whole church body being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Or as Paul explains to to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says to him, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You see, the church, we, the church, are now the the temple of the Lord, the dwelling place of the Spirit, the household of God. And so this preacher of Ecclesiastes is instructing us as well on how we are to behave, how we are to approach and worship as we gather together as the house of God. He's teaching us how we as the church gathered together corporately, gathered together corporately, and again, this is happening all over the place, various locations, various local assemblies, but how how we as we are gathered together corporately, how we are to approach our God and how we are to worship him, listen carefully, how we are to worship him with wisdom. How we are to worship him with wisdom. And you see this emphasis here on wisdom in our text in this preacher's better than language. Again, look at the text. He likes to use this phrase, better than. He tells us in verse 1, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And then you go down to verse 5, he writes, it's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. And again, if you've been with us in our study of Ecclesiastes, you know that this this better than language, it's nothing new in this book. We've encountered it repeatedly in this book, and we're going to keep encountering it in this book. And we're going to keep finding this this better than language because it is wisdom language. 
It's wisdom language. It is language designed to help us grow in our discernment and our skill for living. Oh, this is better than that. So choose the better thing. So it's language to help us grow in our discernment and our skill for living. Uh, if you remember this from our, our study of Proverbs this last Sunday, or this last summer, um, wisdom in the Bible is a skill for living. It's just not just information that you put in your head. It's actually that skill for living life. It's that ability to, to choose what is better in all those various situations that you encounter on a daily basis in your life. It's wisdom language, and Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. It is written to help us gain a skill for living life in this fallen world, this life under the sun. And here it's showing us wisdom for worship in this fallen world. It's, it's giving us wisdom for worship in, in this world where, where foolishness sadly abounds in the house of God. So this preacher tells us, watch out, guard your and what he's telling us here is that we need to watch out. We need to watch out for the fools. We need to watch out for the fools we'll encounter in the house of God. Here in the first seven verses, if you look at the text, God is not the only term that this preacher repeats. He also repeatedly speaks of fools. And he does that, brothers and sisters, because he's being open and honest with us. You know, he is not sugarcoating the situation, not whitewashing the situation. He's pointing out very clearly that even in the house of God, even in the church, there are fools. There are fools. There are those who worship without thinking. There are those who make boastful God promises but never follow through on them. There are those who speak thoughtless words about God and about one another and do so under the guise of practicing religion. This preacher is warning us about the foolishness that goes on in the house of God. But here's the thing. It's not just foolishness around us. It's not just foolishness around us. He, he doesn't just point out the foolishness of other people in the house of God. He also points out our own foolishness. You see, his message here isn't just watch out for the fools. It's also very much watch out, you fools. He's going to speak to us very directly about our own actions. So this preacher, he understands that foolishness abounds in the house of God. It abounds in the church, both around us and within us. But here's the thing. His answer isn't to simply pack up and go home. His answer isn't simply to pack up and go home. It's not to bail on the church. Instead, his answer is to continue to go to the house of God, continue to go to the church, but to do so wisely. Wisely. Notice again what he says here in the text. Notice again verse 1. Look at, look at the text. Does it say in your Bible, guard your steps if you go to the house of God? Is that what it says? Is he saying, if you get up the intestinal fortitude to deal with all that foolishness, then you better watch yourself. That's not what he's saying at all. Instead, all of the major translations say, guard your steps when or as you go to the house of God. Of God. You see this preacher, he's not giving us an out. He's not giving us an out. He, he's not making our church going optional. Instead, he assumes that we are going because that's what God has called us to do. That's what God has created us to do. So he assumes that we are going. And so this preacher then wants us to go with wisdom. To go with wisdom. And beloved, that, that's part of how we deal with all the foolishness. We, we push back on the folly in the household of God, in the house of God, by learning each and every one of us how to worship wisely. We push back by learning how to worship wisely. We push back on the foolishness by learning how to walk that better than way when we go to the house of God. And that better than way, that way of worshiping wisely, begins with listening intently. It begins with listening intently. Here in verse 1, we read, look again, verse 1. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifices of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. It's better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. You see, there is an ignorance in all of us. And this ignorance, it can have us 
coming into the house of God, offering praises and prayers and service, but doing so like a bunch of fools. Doing so like a bunch of fools. We can come in offering what the text calls the sacrifice of fools. It's a catchy little phrase, but what does it mean? What is the sacrifice of fools? Well, again, look at the text. According to the text, the, the sacrifice of fools, these are the evil things that we do before God in worship that arise out of our ignorance. The preacher says, for they do not know that they are doing evil. You see, there can be a cluelessness in each and every one of us. There can be a cluelessness in each and every one of us. You know this, before, before being born again by the Spirit and coming to Christ, we were all, every single one of us, darkened in our understanding. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. We were darkened in our understanding. We were all, at that time, spiritually clueless. Before being born again, before coming to Christ, we were all spiritually clueless. We were all just going along worshiping gods of our own making, Right? Worshiping gods of our making, those gods that arose out of our own desires, those gods that were fueled by our own lust, those gods that were rooted in our own misguided hope, like hopes that we would be beautiful forever, or that we would gain lasting security by all the wealth we accumulated, or that we would, we would find true lasting satisfaction in all of our hedonistic, lust-driven pursuits. Remember those gods? Remember them? In our cluelessness, we were just worshiping the idols of our heart. But then when we had this, this glorious change of heart, right? When we were made alive and we were brought to faith in Christ, we began this process of transformation. Those idols began to be torn down. But you know this, that didn't happen instantaneously, right? It would be nice, they're all just gone forever. We never have to deal with them. But those little buggers, they're hard to get rid of, right? They have this wave just sticking around. And so that's why Scripture calls us to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's this process. So, so we fight the, off this, this cluelessness that has us worshiping all of these idols in our heart. We fight off that cluelessness with truth. With the revelation that God has given us of himself in his word. We continue to get rid of all that old worship, that old idolatry by filling our minds with truth about the real God and how he calls us to worship him. However, here's the thing. If we're not filling our minds with the truth, if we neglect being intentional listeners and, and continue on in that immature cluelessness, then we'll just continue offering foolish sacrifices, the sacrifice of fools. We'll just keep worshiping those gods of our heart. But what we'll do is we'll just slap a Christian label across them. Right? And, and sadly, this happens. This happens in the house of God. People took their old gods, like, like power and wealth and sex and pleasure, and they just try to Christianize them. That's how you end up with a prosperity gospel. That's how you end up with LGBTQ-affirming denominations. That's how you end up with abusive, power-hungry CEO pastors. It's simply people trying to worship their old gods in a Christian garb. And that comes from not listening and learning intently. We end up stuck in our immaturity. However, there are others who come to the house of God also not intent on listening. And that's because they come assuming they already have all the answers. They come assuming they already have all the answers. They too bring the sacrifice of fools because they, they bring a sacrifice out of their arrogance. Oh, I already know. And beloved, this is, this is such an easy trap for us to fall into. Let me just give you a, a personal illustration from my own life uh, of what this looks like. Um, when I was back in college, so just uh, a couple years ago, a short time ago, but when I was back in college, uh, one of the first theological books that I read was Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And, and I really enjoyed the book until I got to the section on God's sovereign election when it relates to salvation. And Packer, in that book, he writes from a traditional reform perspective on that, and that wasn't sitting well with me at all. So one day, while I'm reading that book, I'm having lunch in the school cafeteria with, at the time, my lovely fiance named Amy, who wanted to become my wife. And she looks across the table and she asks me about the book. What, what do you think of it? And so I told her. Well, I'm enjoying it. 
But all the stuff about election, that's a bunch of craziness. I don't know who in the world would believe that God is actually like that. Well, then Amy looked across the table at me, and she said, well, guess what? I believe that. And you could have heard a pin drop at that table. Or maybe better said, you could have heard my blood pressure rise at that table. You see, right then and there, I said, I'm just going to set my fiance straight about this. I'm going to show her how all this is a bunch of foolishness. There was, there was only one big problem. Amy knew what the Bible taught far better than I did. <laughs> so, so for a half hour, I, I just came at her with all of these arguments. Arguments that were mostly grounded in my human understanding of fairness and my own, own personal conjecture on the way that things should be and my own limited view of salvation. I was coming at her with all these arguments and Amy kept coming back at me with the Bible. <laughs> with Scripture. Over and over again, she'd point to a passage and said, well, what do you do with this? And what do you do with this? And what do you do with this? And eventually what I did was blow up and storm out of the cafeteria. <laughs> you see, my arrogant ignorance had been exposed. Now, thankfully, my wife is a patient and forgiving person. And she's also a person who understood that my understanding of God just needed to grow. And so as I kept reading the Bible, I, I began to understand that Packer wasn't really out to lunch uh, on that topic. And, and I also discovered that there was there was a lot of assumption in my own personal theology, a lot of Bible missing. Uh, I realized uh, that I needed to take up a, the posture of a learner. And beloved, that's true of all of us, amen? That's true of all of us. Uh, let me just put it to you this way. We are all people in process. We are all people in process, growing in our understanding of God and his ways as we continue together to learn his word. None of us. Not a one of us has arrived. Amen? None of us have arrived. And if you think that you have arrived, watch out that you don't end up, from your ignorance, offering the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools. Here's the thing. Sometimes our faulty approach to God isn't simply because of, of a clueless immaturity or an arrogant understanding Sometimes it's just because we get so distracted with other things. And then we end up thoughtlessly tossing God the leftovers. So distracted with other things, we're just thoughtlessly tossing God the leftovers in our life. Now here's the thing. Most Christians don't start off that way. Most people, when they first come to Christ, they are like a house on fire. Maybe you remember that in your own life, like a house on fire. I mean, they can't get enough. They can't get enough studying of the Bible. They can't get enough hanging out with other Christians. They can't get enough prayer. They're praying all day long for everything. And anyone who comes across the path, their path, guess what? They're going to hear about Jesus. Right? That's how we start off. New Christians, they just love learning and sharing truths about God. But then sadly, as happens to so many of us, that fire, and it cools off. Life gets busy. My Bible starts getting dusty. We find ourselves spending more time complaining than we do praying. Fewer and fewer people hear us talk about Jesus. We just become distracted with so many other things. And when we're in that place, beloved, eventually going to church, going to the house of God becomes just another thing that we do because we're supposed to do it. This is another thing we do, we're supposed to do it. And so we don't show up eager to learn, anticipating meeting with God, desiring to worship him in spirit and in truth. Instead, we find ourselves just tossing him our, our distracted leftovers. We'll fit him in at this, po this point today. Just toss him our leftovers. And so this preacher here, he's warning us against that. He's warning us against this, this ignorance that is there in all of us. This ignorance that can have us offering the sacrifice of fools, that, that praise and service and prayer that flows from our, our clueless immaturity or our arrogant understanding or our distracted devotion. He warns us. But praise God, he also points us to the remedy. You see, we deal with our ignorance, beloved, by coming to the house of God eager to listen. Eager to listen. Again, look at the text. This preacher tells us in verse 1, to draw near to listen is better. 
To draw near to listen is better. So we push away from our immaturity. We push away from our arrogance. We push away from our distracted devotion by coming eager to church, eager to hear what God has to say. One of the things I found really interesting in my study for this message is that in the Old Testament, uh, the pattern for worship in the temple was that you would start worship with listening. Actually, as you first offered your sacrifice, you offered it in silence. And, and the silence was there for reflection. The silence was there for understanding. The silence was there to remind you that you were in the presence of one far greater than you are. As one scholar comments, the silence actually shouted out the covenant love of a holy, holy, holy God for undeserving sinners. As you came and you offered that sacrifice, it reminded you you are in the presence of a holy God who demands payment for sin, but he gave you a way, a way to be forgiven. That same scholar then points out that the silence was then broken by the reading of the law of Moses and an explanation for all the people. The response then to hearing from God was to speak to God through prayers and songs and sometimes personal vows. And the service then closed with a a benediction, a word of blessing. And, And all that to say that in the Old Testament, going to the house of God was all about, it all began with closing your mouth and opening your ears. It all started with listening. And the same needs to be true of us today, beloved. Uh, Maybe your mom, like my mom, had this little saying, God gave you two ears and one mouth, and there's a reason for that. Right? God gave you two ears, one mouth, and there's a reason for that. We need to remember the importance of listening. And isn't that the same thing that James tells us, right? Remember, this is James 1.19. He told us, let every person be quick to hear, Slow to speak and slow to anger. Now we get that backwards sometimes, right? Anger is right there. We want to speak and we don't listen at all. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Beloved, that needs to be true in all of life. But it especially needs to be true as we approach our God in worship. We need to come eager to hear, quick to hear. We need to come listening intently. Look again at our text. Look again at our text. And it's such a little word here in verse 1, but it's such an important little word. To draw near to listen. To draw near to listen is better. And that little word too, that's, that's the word that makes that, that verb listen in infinitive. It shows us there the intentionality. There's to be this intentionality in our drawing near. It is a a drawing near to listen, to listen. Now, there are all kinds of reasons that people draw near. Uh, Some draw near to God to gripe and complain. Others come near to demand from God or to be served by him. Some, Some people come into corporate worship in order to show off all their spiritual accomplishments or to find a little pep talk to make them feel good about themselves. Or just because they don't want to be judged by others for not going to worship. But wise worship, wise worship is drawing near, is a drawing near that is intent on listening. It, it comes with this, this humility that confesses, I don't have all the answers. I need to be taught. Left to myself, I will make a mess of things. I will offer the sacrifice of fools, and I won't even know that what I'm doing is evil. So wise worship, Begins by coming before God, eager to shut our mouths and just listen to what he has to say. And honestly, uh, that's what we're trying to do here at Redemption. Uh, On Sunday mornings, you saw it this Sunday morning, we we try to open every service by just listening to God. We we begin by reading his word. This morning, our brother Daniel read it for us. And we want to begin by, by looking up and listening up. Put those words on the screen so that you can all read along with them. We, we want to really enter into worship by first listening to God. And then, and then we try to, to sing his word to one another. 
Uh, we, we work really hard here to choose rich, biblical, gospel-saturated songs that, that we can sing together proclaiming truth to one another. And here's the thing, we, we don't want those to just be words on our lips. We, we want them to be us proclaiming to one another about the greatness and the glory of our God. We want our minds engaged, really thinking about, really listening to the truth. And so that's why often in the middle of those beginning songs, we'll put a reading in there, like this morning from Colossians 1. And we do that because we want our brains engaged. We really want to be learning about who our God is and what he's done. And then we come to the kids' story. And we do that because we want to teach our kids about who our God is. We want them to learn to listen, just be talking all the time. Learn to listen, to listen to the truths of the word, to hear the glorious gospel story, to have their their little hearts captivated by our God. And then we come to the preaching of his word. And and here at Redemption, we we practice what's called expository preaching. And, And expository preaching, simply put, is preaching that expository explains, brings to light what is there in the text. So it is preaching that lets the text, not not the preacher in his wisdom, but lets the text drive the sermon. As Pastor Mark Dever likes to put it in expository preaching, the point of the text becomes the point of the sermon. It's not a topical sermon where the preacher has the idea and he he picks out some passages to support that idea. It's where the, the point of the message comes from the text itself. And so each week what I get to do is I get to go into my study and I listen. I get to listen. And I, I listen by digging into the text. I try to set aside all my preconceived ideas of what I want to preach about. And I just want to let the text speak to me. So I study it. I dig in. I meditate on it. I pray over it. And what I want to do is I just want to know, why is it there? Why, why has God put whatever text that we're working through that week, why has he put it there in his word? What is he trying to teach us through that text? What is it there to communicate? So I want to listen to that so that I can learn. And then that's what I try to come and communicate to all of you guys on Sunday morning. I just want to come and say, hey guys, I was studying this text this week, and this is what this text says. This is what it teaches. I just want us all listening to the point of the text. And here's the thing. The reason that I do that, the reason we work so hard here at Redemption to do expository preaching is because we have a God who has spoken. We have a God who has spoken. As you read through the Old Testament, you often find the Old Testament prophets uh, making fun of the people's worship of idols, poking fun, ridiculing them for their worship of idols. They point out, you know, it's just a piece of wood that you're worshiping. It's just a hunk of metal. Uh, The prophet Habakkuk, he gives us a really good example of this. This is from chapter two of his book. He writes, listen, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Can this teach this this silent stone, this wooden thing? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. And then he writes this, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, let us humbly shut our mouths because we don't have a God that is like the, the gods of this world, mute idols. We have a God who speaks. Amen? We have a God who speaks. And in his grace, he's spoken to us. He has given us 66 books full of revelation all about himself. So here's the question. Why would I want to get up here and talk about anything else? Right? 66 books? I mean, you guys might be entertained by by some stories and some jokes. But don't we really need to hear what God says? Don't we really need to hear what God says? That's why we spend all this time. Sometimes you're like, man, we're moving slow through the text. Today we're going to talk about one verse. (laughs) That's why we spend all this time going slowly through these different books of the Bible, mining out the riches of what God has revealed. And here's the thing. There's nothing that I could come up here and tell you that would be as beneficial, as healthy, as freeing, as powerful as just sharing what God says. And again, praise God that he's given us his word. Amen? Amen? Praise God that he's given us word. He hasn't left us in our ignorance. 
Praise God, we don't have to try to figure things out on our own, you know, stumbling and falling about offering up the sacrifice of fools because they don't know what they're doing is evil. Praise God, we don't have to live that way. Praise God, he's given us his word. And so then wise worship starts with us coming to the house of God intent on listening. Listening. Now next Sunday we're going to talk more about wise worship, we're going to move from, from learning to listen intently to then speaking thoughtfully in the house of God. We're going to talk about that next week. But as I wrap up this morning, I just want to, want to give you a few helpful pointers, a few tips on being a better, what I'll call, listening worshiper. Being a better listening worshiper. And being a better listening worshiper really starts with coming as a humble learner. It starts with coming as a humble learner. We need to come as humble learners. Let me put it to you this way. We are coming to the house of God. We are coming to the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are coming to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are coming to worship our God and learn from him. So that means we need to come with humility. Amen? This is not all about us. Right? We've come to worship God. This is not all about us. It's not all about us being entertained. It's not all about us having our egos stroked. It's not about us having all of our preconceived ideas supported. And so I'll put it to you this way. We should come on Sunday mornings expecting to be challenged. We should come expecting to be challenged because we are all dealing with deep-rooted ignorance in our own hearts and we are all dealing with a God who is so far beyond us. He is so unlike us. So we should come expecting to be challenged because we've got this ignorance, right? needs to be dealt with. And again, I wish it was just a, and it's all gone. But it's not. It's a process. And so as we come each Sunday and behold the greatness and glory of our God and have our ignorance exposed, we should expect to be challenged. So come expecting that. Come eager to learn. Not like you have all the answers, eager to learn. Come as a humble learner. And then second, come as an expectant worshiper. Come as an expectant worshiper. And what I mean by that is come prayed up, excited, ready to hear what God says. Come prayed up, excited, ready to hear what God says. See, it's too easy for us to just fall into this trap of going to church like it's some duty that we need to perform, like it's just some religious ceremony that we need to walk through. And what's the schedule? Okay, that's the time I need, and then we'll be out and we'll be on to something else. But it's not just a religious ceremony that we walk through, right? It's something so much better than that. We are meeting together with the Spirit of God in our midst, and that Spirit of God, He is eager to work among us. He is eager. He is eager to conform us to the image of Christ. He is eager to build in us lives that truly glorify God. So come prayed up and ready to go, right? Come ready to go. Come eager to hear from God. And eager for him to do great things in your life. And then realize that being a, a listening worshiper doesn't stop when you leave this building. Realize it doesn't stop when you leave this building. We all need to take what we hear, what we, we learn, what God teaches us. We need to take it home with us so we can meditate on it and then practice it. We need to meditate and practice. Here's the thing. If by Monday morning you can't talk, can't remember what we talked about on Sunday morning, uh, maybe you got some room to grow as a listening worshiper. If you can't remember tomorrow what we talked about today, maybe you have some room to grow. Let me again quote to you from James. James writes, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once he forgets what he's like. So whether, whether it means learning to take better notes on a Sunday or have, intentionally having conversations with family or with friends or with your fellowship group about, about what God is teaching you, find ways to, to better remember and to practice what God has revealed to you from his word. And last, I'll put it this, this last one. Come back again and again to the house of God and come in grace. Come back again and again and come in grace. And what I mean by that is that we will at times find ourselves encountering and practicing foolishness in the house of God. 
It will happen, right? We will find ourselves encountering foolishness. We will find ourselves practicing foolishness, right? In the house of God. We talked about it at the beginning. We will find ourselves in those spots. But don't let that stop you from coming. Instead, let that be one more thing that reminds you of our tremendous need for the grace of God in Christ. Amen? We all need God's grace. And praise God for his grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. I was thinking about this this week. Praise God that we have a Savior who in his earthly life, he worshiped perfectly, right? No foolishness in his worship. His his worship was perfect. It was wise. And his active obedience, his perfect worship, his wise worship, his active obedience is then credited to our account through faith in Christ. So even with our failure, because we fail, amen? Even with our failure, we continue to come and be accepted in the grace of God that is ours through Christ. So beloved, keep coming. Keep coming. In grace, keep coming to the house of God. Let's admit our foolishness. Let's fight it with wise worship. And let's rest in the finished work of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come to you and we praise you. We worship you. There is none like you. We thank you that you are our great, glorious, and full Savior. All of our failures, all of our foolishness, all of our sin is atoned for by your blood. All of our failings, all of our foolishness, all of our sin, it's covered in your perfect righteousness. So I thank you that we can come. Even as we we fail, we say dumb things, we think dumb things. At times we find ourselves offering the sacrifice of fools. But we can come covered in your blood, forgiven by your blood, covered in your perfect righteousness. We can come in grace. And and from that place of grace, then, then, Give us joyful hearts that that desire to learn and grow. That honestly admit our our ignorance. That do come as humble learners. That do come excited to learn, eager to be changed by you. And, and And that we don't just walk through these services, but that... We take the things that we encounter and experience and are taught here on Sunday morning, and we take those with us. Help us to, to meditate on those all throughout the week. Help us to talk with one another and say, how are you applying this? This is how I'm applying this. Pray for me. That from God's grace, I would live this out. Help us to have those conversations. That we would be wise worshipers. Those who truly live lives intent on listening. Because we have a God who has spoken. We praise you. We praise you for saving us. We praise you for bringing us into this relationship, this relationship we were created for. Thank you for bringing us into this relationship with God. Help us to live in a way that honors him. These things we pray in your name. Amen.